Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at verses, uh, just a few short verses, 32 through 34. through 34. Uh, the, the setting, the setting you'll recall from, from last week is, is Jesus is talking about the, the kingdom of God and he said, uh, he said something like, those who have left everything to follow, follow me would receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then uh, they, the, the disciples, but also a, a group of people that are, that are actually following, following them along, uh, it says that in the next passage, it says, and they were amazed. And then those who followed were afraid. Why would they be afraid? What, what is going on is in this passage? What is it about the kingdom of God and the, and the things that Jesus has just said that might make them afraid? If you can envision it, I don't know who, any of you who, if any of you have been to Jerusalem, uh, but it's kind of up on a hill. It's, uh, it's called a mountain, but it's really just a, it's kind of a hill. But in order to get up to Jerusalem, you have to take some, some routes that uh, that would be very visible for everyone. So, if you're coming up to Jerusalem and you have you have the twelve disciples first of all who are following you, and then you have this mob of people that are behind you, there might be reason to fear that the thor the authorities may be on to you, right? So Jesus has just been talking about the kingdom of God coming, and we've seen that within. Within the Jewish worldview, the kingdom of God is not something, it's not heaven, right? It's not somewhere out there that, um, that, you know, maybe this is going to happen way off in the future. No, this is, this is an earthly kingdom that the Messiah is expected to set up, and he's going to rule from Jerusalem. And so what, what's associated with that is usually war. And so this people, they've been hearing what's, what Jesus has been saying to the crowds and to to, to the disciples at some time, and in some times, <clears throat> and they're, they're getting a bit concerned because here we are going up to Jerusalem, and there's this mob of people, and they may think, hey, this, this could get out of hand very quickly, right? If this guy truly is who he says he is, and uh, he's going to bring in the kingdom of God, we can expect war. I think this is what's going on, and this is why I think uh, Mark says that those who followed were afraid, right? This, is, this could get out of hand quickly. These are people who, like the disciples, thought that the battle might commence at any moment, that the Messiah might draw up an army and go about fighting. And so this could get out of hand quickly. Now, the disciples had planned, come what may, that they would follow him and that they would have preeminent roles within his administration. So we think of this like kind of like a, uh, it's, it's a war, and you have your generals, right, your right-hand men. Uh, these guys thought they were going, they had left everything. Right? In a very earthly sense, they had left everything 
they had no money, essentially. They were dependent upon everybody else, the goodwill of everyone, and they had left everything, and they were following Jesus into the kingdom of God, and this is what they thought they were doing. Right? They, they were doing it, but they didn't realize quite the sense in which they were doing it. And they expected to have preeminent roles within his administration. And then we get this brief exchange between him and the disciples. And it concerns his description of himself. It, it, it concerns his description of himself as the son of man. We, we've seen this before uh, as, we've, as we've begun to go through Mark, but we haven't really stopped and asked, what does, what does this title, son of man, mean? Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? So I want to read uh, 32 through 34, and we're going to see his description of himself as Son of Man. And then I, hopefully by the end, you'll see, that, you'll see the way in which his description of himself as the Son of Man and what he is claiming that he's going to do or what's going to happen to him actually fits perfectly with that title. We're going to be. Uh, we're going to look briefly at, at chapters uh, at uh, chapters one through seven of Daniel, where uh, I don't expect you to to turn there and and follow through. I want. To, I'll be summarizing chapter by chapter what's happening in an effort to, in an effort to kind of make the first seven chapters of Daniel, uh, make them kind of fit within a within a pattern. Okay, I think they do fit within a pattern. I want to show you what's going on there and show you how the mindset of Jesus is actually, he's tapped into this, this idea of the Son of Man, and he believes himself to be this character within Daniel who's going to bring about the kingdom of God on behalf of the saints. Okay? So we're going to, let's look at uh, verses 32 through 34, and then uh, we're going to look at what Mark says about Son of Man, and then we're going to flip over to Daniel, and then we're going to look at, at kind of this book, as kind of a at a run, right? we're going to look at one through six, and then chapter seven of Daniel, where this uh, this title of Son of Man occurs. The Son of Man, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Verse thirty-two, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, "See." We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now keep in mind here this notion of delivering him over to the Gentiles. And think about the book of Daniel as, as, we, as we go through it. What it. Where is the setting of Daniel? Where are they? Right? They're, they're in Babylon. They're among the Gentiles. This is going to be a, this is a very important part of it. The Son of Man comes to us as this vague notion, often conjuring up images of a human. Right? We think of Son of Man, we think it's a son of a man, right? or the son of Adam maybe speaking of a human, but it's often cloaked in mystery, and it is. But what is it all about, this notion, 
<clears throat> this notion of the Son of Man. We often simply try to figure out the things, uh, these things by looking at the gospel, the gospels themselves. They, they, he, al he always uses this title about himself, uh, even in the other gospels. But what we have seen as we've come through Mark is that in, in pretty much every situation where Jesus either acts spectacularly or he says something, he has in mind some kind of scripture. Right? So he's acting, he's, I don't want to say acting, but he's, he's taking on the role of these scriptural characters and he's enacting them. Almost everything Jesus says and does arises from a particular reading of scripture. The title and actions associated with the Son of Man is no different. To understand what these are about, we need to look at the book of Daniel. But before we do that, we should note within the Gospel of Mark the various contexts in which we see Jesus use this title. Well, we should think about this, this fact. Either for someone to walk around and claim to be a character within the book of Daniel who's going to bring about the kingdom of God, he would have to be either nuts or who he claims to be. I mean, it's that simple. C.S. Lewis has put this uh, quite precisely. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord, right? But think about someone walking around and claiming to be a character in a movie, right? That's about it. Is he or is he not? He is either crazy or he is the son of man. But he himself walked around speaking of himself in this way. Carrying out the role of that figure. In any case, his, his application of this title to himself is an invitation for us to figure out what he meant by it. So let's look at Mark. Uh, so beginning in Mark chapter 2, verse 10... He says of himself, the Son of Man, speaking in the third person, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is the only mention of, of forgiveness of sins associated with the Son of Man, but this is, gonna, this is pretty important, uh, obviously. Chapter 2, verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Number 3. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, be killed, and rise from the dead. That's in 831. So we had two back in chapter 2. He waits till chapter 8 to use the title again. In other words, the Son of Man must suffer and be vindicated, proved to be in the right. This is what vindication means. You're, so if you stand before a judge and he, he confirms that you are indeed innocent, You've been vindicated of the charge against you. He will suffer and he will be vindicated. This is the first prediction, chapter 8, verse 31, of his suffering and resurrection. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 838. The Son of Man must rise from the dead, be vindicated. In other words, chapter 9, verse 9. The Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt Verse 12, 9, 12, after Elijah comes, Elijah in quotes, talking about John the Baptist, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and after three days he will arise, 9, 31. They're becoming more frequent. 
The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and condemned to death and delivered over to the Gentiles. Be mocked, flogged, spit upon, and killed, and after three days, rise. It's our present verse. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay? Drawing in there the theme of the servant and combining it with the idea of the Son of Man. We're only going to get to the Son of Man, but th see, notice what he's doing here. Mark is combining the notion of the Son of Man, which, what, which is what we'll talk about, with the notion of the servant. Isaiah 52, 13 through 50, into 53. He's combining these two things. And it's going to form a picture of what Jesus is actually doing. The Son of Man will come on the clouds with great glory and power and send forth his angels, or his messengers probably, to gather his people from the ends of the earth. That's 1326. The Son of Man goes as it is written, and this happens through the betrayal of Judas. The Son of Man goes, he says, as it is written. Chapter 1421. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And when you see sinners in the New Testament, it's not just talking about like people like me and you. Well, maybe it is, but it's talking about the Gentiles. Right? The Gentiles are the sinners, not the Jews. Right? The Jews are not the sinners. The Gentiles are. It's a technical term for the Gentiles. So he says, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 1462. And these are all the references to Son of Man in, in the Gospel of Mark. Notice that almost all of them relate to a role that Jesus, the human, seems to be taking upon himself. They almost all involve a role that will entail suffering. Notice that there is, coupled with that suffering, a vindication of the one who suffers. In other words, he will be proved by some spectacular event to be who he said he will, who he says uh, that he was. A vindication is along with the suffering. The sufferer is raised from the dead and shown to be in the right. He is also shown to have authority. He's given authority by virtue of his suffering, authority to forgive sins, and authority by virtue of his exalted position. He's at the right hand of power. If you look in, if you look in Acts, Acts with the stoning of Stephen, he's sitting at the right, standing actually in, in Acts, at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Well, he's at the right hand, and which means that he has been enthroned. He's, he's reigning as king. And because of this exalted position, and because of the suffering that he is enduring as the faithful son of man, and Son of God, he is able to forgive sins. Now, in the past, uh, the Son of Man title has often been approached from, from a description of the dual nature perspective. And what I mean by that is that people, uh, starting very early in the 400s and 500s with the development of the creeds, uh, they began to talk about kind of the composition of Jesus. So they said, well, Jesus has this, the human nature, he has the divine nature, and they went about trying to figure this out, mostly because of heretics, right? Because heretics were claiming, well, Jesus wasn't divine, or some were saying, well, he wasn't human, he just kind of appeared to be human, and so the councils are working these things out. And so then 
the, the commentators have picked up on this and they've started explaining these titles in basically a platonic kind of framework rather than a biblical framework. They'll think, well, the Son of Man is referring to his humanity, what he does in his humanity, and the Son of God is referring to what he does in his capacity as, as God, right? And so they'll say, well, his healings, they, that reflects his, um, his capacity as, as divine. Sometimes he knows the knowledge of, and the thoughts of people. Uh, he casts out demons, right? This shows that he's divine. These things are said to reflect his divine nature. And then as the son of man, this is somehow reflecting his humanity, right? His suffering as a human, his feelings as a human. And this actually makes good sense. I mean, it, it fits, but it's, I don't think it's exactly right. And uh, it seems to me to be wrong on several accounts. This is not what Jesus, as one who is a true human, is thinking. Or what anyone writing about him is thinking, I don't think. What's happening with the Son of Man language, and also the, the Son of God language, is that Jesus is using it as a way to act symbolically as the principal figure that we see in Daniel chapter 7. We've seen before that Jesus' Jesus's actions are often filled with symbol. This does not mean that the symbol is somehow not real, or that it uh, somehow didn't happen. It simply means that his speech and his actions were pointers to other things. Like red skies at night point to good weather the next day. Like red skies in the morning point to a storm likely to come. Or like someone getting into a bad spot in need of rescue and the camera pans around to a phone booth. What's about to happen? have to be from that era. Superman is about to change clothes and go rescue someone, right? The phone booth is a sign, it's a pointer, and when the camera spans, right, he's getting ready to rescue them. Superman is about to act, okay? Now, in the Western church, most of us have, as a reaction to Catholic iconography and symbols, rejected symbol on all levels. But I suggest that we should go back to reading Jesus' actions as highly symbolic. It does not mean that they're unreal. It means that they're more than real. It means that they have something in them that is not just the event itself, but that they point to something else. Think about the prophets in particular, and this is probably the route that we should go when we think about Jesus. Think about the prophets and how they express themselves as God's messengers. Think of Isaiah, Isaiah 20, where Isaiah goes barefoot and naked as a sign against Egypt and Cush, that the king of Assyria would lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. That's what it says. And so here you have this prophet who is walking around showing without underwear, without anything on, as a sign, a great symbol, that Egypt and Cush are about to be overthrown and taken into exile. It is a very powerful way to communicate. Think of, Isaiah, of, of Jeremiah walking around in stocks. Right? He's walking around with stocks on, 
which means they're going to be led away to Babylon in stocks. Think of Ezekiel lying on his side 390 days for the sins of Israel and 40 for the sins of Judah. This is the type of symbol that I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus acting out symbolically a figure or figures within the scriptures. He is embodying them. He is embodying a literary figure, not as a historical representation as if to say, oh, these characters existed and I'm like them. No, what he is, in do what he is doing is embodying them as fulfillment of scripture. All the promises in him are yes and amen, and he is demonstrating, or rather Mark and Matthew and Luke and John are demonstrating the way in which he has embodied these characters within the scriptures. We saw earlier in the study of Mark that Jesus was embodying Israel, God's son, when he was baptized uh, in the Jordan by John the Baptist. This symbolic action was to signify the coming out of Egypt and it was an advanced signal of the conquest of the land by Israel. Thus, it was an advanced symbol of Jesus' conquering the land as the obedient son of God. We also noted that Israel had been designated in Exodus chapter 4 as God's son. And so for Jesus then to take on that title as son of God doesn't simply mean, it does, we come to find out, it comes to come to find out it means that he's existed with the Father forever. We know this, right, from the scriptures. But that primarily it is a reference to Jesus as the obedient son, unlike Israel. Like Israel, but unlike Israel. Jesus was thereby fulfilling the role, the vocation of Israel as the obedient son of God, a new Adam, if you will, one who endured temptation in the wilderness instead of succumbing to it. Unlike Israel, God's son, Jesus, Jesus would go on to conquer the land and be enthroned in the midst of the land. He was, <clears throat> uh, essentially this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, the enthronement of God's son. But if we read it, if we read it apart from the Israel story, it doesn't make much sense. Okay? Note also in the context of, of Psalm 2, when, when, uh, this messianic king, when Israel is enthroned, he is given authority over the nations, and his inheritance is the ends of the earth. Okay? So the symbolic action that is carried out by Jesus by being baptized in the Jordan is a pointer to his action as a new Israel who is going to succeed where Israel, God's son, had failed. That's as, that's as simple as it gets. We also saw that Jesus acted symbolically when he was driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be te tested by Satan. We saw in that section that Jesus was embodying Israel as they came out of Egypt and spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. He spent 40 days, they spent 40 years. So highly symbolic, undergoing the testing that Israel underwent in the wilderness, a testing that is now undergone by every son whom the Father receives. And he came out victorious on the other side. This is the type of symbol that I'm speaking of. Of Jesus embodying through symbolic actions the, the persons and vocations prophesied in the scriptures. Now, let's flip over to Daniel. Um, we're going to look specifically at, at chapter 7. But I want, to, I want to kind of run through chapters 1 through 6 uh, in summary fashion and basically 
show you this paradigm that is set within each chapter and then as a culmination of the whole. And then we will see, we'll bring this back to Mark and, and see exactly how Jesus is using this, uh, this figure. If we think of the overarching structure of the book of Daniel, we'll see that they have come, uh, the first six chapters will have uh, common and related elements. Daniel and his friends undergo trials because they refuse to obey the dictates of a pagan king in a pagan kingdom. They're tested in some way. They often undergo suffering. They are proven to be in the right, doing the right things, obeying the true God, and not idols. And then they are exalted in some way or another, vindication. Think about this. This is very important, very important as you read the book of Daniel to see what's going on with it. There is a claim then, usually at the end of every chapter, there's a claim that the kingdom of God is above all and is seen in the vindication of his people. Right? The evidence that the kingdom of God rules over all of, all of humanity, right? They're among the nations in Babylon, but yet the kingdom of God is there as well. The evidence for that is seen in the vindication and the exaltation of Daniel or Daniel and his friends, or the three friends, they're vindicated. Chapter 1, we have four young men who refuse to eat the excellent food of the king. Perhaps this is idolatrous food, doesn't matter. They're commanded to do it. They refuse. They become healthier than ever. And they're given positions of preeminence in the royal court. Vindication. Chapter 2, Daniel's wisdom is demonstrated. He can reveal and interpret the king's dream. The dream itself then becomes the central message of the chapter. There's a statue made with four different parts, and then a stone comes and breaks it into pieces and becomes a great mountain. This refers to four kingdoms, which will be ousted by the everlasting kingdom brought about by Israel's God. This sets the theme then for the whole book. The, the kingdom of God rules among men. Chapter 3, Daniel's companions. They refuse to worship the golden image and are thrown into the fiery furnace. They are miraculously rescued and given promotion and honor. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision. Daniel interprets it. In it, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled after his great pride. He goes mad until he recognizes the one God of heaven, Israel's God. And he recognizes that God's kingdom is a kingdom that is over his and one that endures forever, and he must submit to it. Chapter 5, Belshazzar celebrates a pagan feast with the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. Daniel interprets the writing on the wall because he has the spirit of the holy gods in him. The king has exalted himself, and he will be brought low. Because of his idolatry and arrogance, his kingdom has been measured and found wanting, and it will be divided. That night, the king is slain, and Darius the Mede becomes king. Vindication of Daniel. Chapter 6, Darius the Mede decrees a wicked decree. No one shall pray for 30 days except to the king. Anyone who resists will be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel resists and is thrown into the lion's den. The king comes and finds him alive. Thankfully, he, he didn't want to kill him, but he, he couldn't do anything else. He's taken up out of the den, 
His accusers are killed in his place. The king issues a decree that everyone shall worship the God of heaven, for he is the living God who endures forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion will have no end. It's a common theme throughout. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is coming. Think of this in relation to what Jesus is doing as well. All of this, chapters 1 through 6, provides the interpretive framework for chapters 7 and following. What happens to the individuals in chapters 1 through 6 is then in turn implied, uh, is applied to the nation. In other words, the individuals in chapters 1 through 6 come to represent the nation as a whole in 7 through 12. Starting in chapter 7, Daniel himself has dreams. So it's no longer the king having dreams, it's Daniel having dreams. They're interpreted by the angel, and it involves four beasts coming up out of the sea, and it culminates in a little horn, the little horn of the fourth beast. These make war with the saints, but the Most High, the Ancient of Days, takes his seat. Thrones are set up, the beasts are slain, and their dominion is taken away. Then one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting king, uh, dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We can hear the parallels. We can hear the parallels between chapters 7 and 1 through 6. The kingdom of God rules among men, and it rules over all. Daniel seeks an interpretation of this strange vision, and he is told what it means in the text. It's very important because most, most people who read Daniel go outside the text for some wild and crazy interpretation. But Daniel himself interprets it, or the angel interprets it for him. Kingdoms, these beasts, are not beasts. They're kingdoms. They're the nations. Kingdoms will be destroyed. Even the little horn, which was terribly dreadful, will be destroyed. The Ancient of Days came, and he passed judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the saints possessed the kingdom. So note earlier he had said, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, the Son of Man. The interpretation of that is the saints will receive the kingdom. Verse 26, so this is 726, but the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, it's a little horn, and annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty and dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. <clears throat> his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the, all the dominions will serve and obey him. This is what was said of the Son of Man. Same thing that was said of the Son of Man in the interpretation of it is said to be that the people of the saints of the Most High will, will receive and possess the kingdom. This is representational theology. Representational theology. What is true of, of the representative, the Son of Man, is true of the saints. What is true of the saints is true of the Son of Man. We've seen these themes before. 
not exactly in this form. But I want to note here that we have the saints who are undergoing suffering and persecution, and then judgment is given to one like the Son of Man, which is said to be the people of the saints of the Most High, and they receive the kingdom, vindication. Suffering, vindication. Both the symbol and action in Mark come from that context. In our current text, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and be killed, and in three days rise again. This is nothing less than the embodiment, embodiment of the Son of Man, saints of the Most High, suffering and being vindicated. Jesus sees in his symbolic action a very real action, that he himself is going to, be, is going to undergo suffering on behalf of all the people and then be vindicated through his resurrection. And this is why he takes on the theme of the title, Son of Man. Jesus, as the representational figure of the people, the saints of the Most High, as we saw in Daniel, is the Son of Man who, after suffering, sees himself being raised from the dead, vindicated by the Ancient of Days. And he is confident that this is going to happen. And by so doing, he will bring about the kingdom of God. This is why this is why it's tied into the Son of Man, right? Suffering, vindication, kingdom of God. From there, he will rule the nations by the authority vested in him as suffering Son of Man. As we saw right there in Daniel 7, he's taking on this persona and saying, I am he who is suffering on behalf of the people. The saints, too, as Jesus himself says in the Great Commission, also receive authority in his name to make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the new exodus from Egypt. They, too, have died with him. They've been raised with him. They are seated with him in the heavenly places by virtue of his representative death and resurrection on their behalf. They, too, are assured forgiveness of sins, which is vindication, vindication and suffering, as the saints of the Most High. But this is not what the disciples are understanding. Back to our context, they believe it is time for war, a different kind of war, a war of flesh and blood, where those wicked pagans are overthrown and God's rule is established through his Messiah and saints. And we can't hardly blame them, because that's what it sounds like, that God is going to come and bash them. They believe it is time for Jesus to make up his mind about who is the right-hand man, the one who will be exalted, or the ones who will be exalted by him when he brings about the kingdom of God. They've learned one thing, that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be enthroned as king. But for them, the fact that he's going to Jerusalem probably means it's time to fight. What they haven't learned is the means by which the kingdom of God is going to come about, though the pattern had been established in the sequence of Daniel. As we'll see next week, the kingdom of God will be brought about by servant acts, rather by one primary, primary servant act. Not by a worldly show of power, not by horses and chariots, not by swords and stones, but by 
giving, life-giving sacrifice. Lastly, as we saw in Daniel 7, and this was understood, this was probably understood at least vaguely by most people in the first century, the suffering and vindication of the Son of Man means the suffering and vindication for his people. So they, they were, it's not that they're completely misunderstanding it. It's that they think they have to fight with flesh and blood. Right? This is, this is the, uh, the misunderstanding. In Jesus' suffering and vindication, his people are also going to be vindicated, though they don't even understand this at this point in the narrative. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul reflects on this very idea of suffering and vindication. And he has taken this uh, to the level that it was intended. Read, read chapter, uh, chapter 5 and 6 of Romans, the represent, representational uh, suffering there in, in Romans. We've died with him, we'll be raised with him. But in 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, he says, speaking to the, the church at Thessalonica, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Suffering. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. In other words, God has, God has judged righteously so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which, indeed, you are suffering. Son of man, theology. In Jesus' identification as son of man, we, too, find our identification, not simply as humans doing truly human things, but as the people of God enduring persecution in view of future vindication.